The sermon text for today is found in Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1539. Listen as I read God's word. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. <clears throat> Excuse me. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Here ends the reading. Good morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Chad, and um, I've had the privilege of being a member here at Elmwood for a little over a year now, and Pastor John has graciously given me the opportunity to preach this morning so that I can learn a little bit more of how to do that. But before I even attempt to preach, I'm going to ask for God's help publicly, so would you pray with me? Father in heaven, without you, I am nothing and can do nothing. Father, it is only by your grace and your mercy that anyone of us is here at all. Father, you, you sent your son Jesus from your right hand in glory in eternity past to become one of us and to become a servant, and he sacrificed everything for us. He demonstrated humble service and servitude and humility better than we ever could. So, Father, today as we come to the text of Scripture, I pray for wisdom. We pray that you would help us to model our lives after the humility and servanthood of Jesus. And, Father, I just pray that you would guard my heart and my words as I preach, that you would not allow me to say anything that is not biblical but to glorify you and to get myself out of the way and to make much of Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We all know that servanthood is a good thing. 
In fact, I would suggest that you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone anywhere who doesn't agree that serving others is generally a good thing. And many people who are followers of Jesus and not followers of Jesus alike often give their money and their time and their energy to serve others in a variety of ways and for a variety of different causes. In fact, the company that I work for, I can remember just in the last few months, sent a large group of volunteers to go to an organization called Feed My Starving Children to package food for needy and hungry kids all around the world just because they believe that serving others is a good thing and we should help one another as human beings. In the last decade or so, there has been an explosion of books and of articles and of teachings throughout the business world about servant leadership. And these books often critique the top-down authoritarian style of leadership that has governed the business world for years and provide a better way to lead, and that is through servant leadership. And I feel safe suggesting that all of us here would at least say in theory that servanthood is a good thing and that we ought to do it. And even if we feel as though we don't live up to that uh, standard in practice, we agree that we probably should. We know that servanthood is a good thing, but yet our experience of servanthood is often distorted. Sometimes others and we ourselves have ulterior motives in serving that are not necessarily the ideal of what they should be. Sometimes we serve others merely to be seen by others and given some kind of word of affirmation. Or sometimes we, we serve others just because we want to get paid or get some kind of recognition or build up our ego. And just a few weeks ago, just to give you an example, my wife and I had the opportunity to go on a cruise through Disney Cruise Line. And they are known and they have a reputation for outstanding customer service. In fact, they have a themed dinner every night where the people who serve you, they assign you two people to a table and their job is to give you five-star customer service across the board every night. And the people that served us did an outstanding job. They're really, really good at what they do. They bend over backwards. Is there anything that you need? They listen like a hawk and they say, oh man, I really like that steak. And they'll give it to you every night in addition to what you order. In fact, I couldn't decide which dessert I wanted on the first night. So I asked if I could have two. And he said, sure, you could have two desserts. Why not? And then he gave me two dinners, whether I asked for it or not, every night ever since. It's outstanding customer service. But here's the catch. On the last day of the cruise, when you hand them the envelope that gives them their tip at the end, the relationship radically changes real fast. I said, okay, thanks, goodbye. You see, the problem with having alternative motives for serving others is that if our motive is not pure to just humbly serve one another out of love for God and neighbor, we stop serving. The second we get what we want or don't get what we want, the temptation is to stop serving. Other times our experience of serving can be very hurtful where we start with good intentions and we give and we give and we give and we give and people give pick up on the fact that we're a giving person and they start to take advantage of us. 
And they just expect us to give all the time until we're totally exhausted. And then they expect us to give some more. And sometimes when we serve others, it can make us feel proud and even tempt us to boast about what we did to help someone else. It can be great PR for a company, or sometimes we just like to boast about it. The temptation can be dangerous, then when we start to brag or even compare ourselves to other people, we get caught in this thing I like to call the comparison game. And when we get caught in the comparison game, sometimes we start to tell other people about what we did in order to feel better about ourselves, or even more dangerous, we serve other people in order to demonstrate that we feel that we are better than someone else. And that hierarchy can be a very dangerous thing. But in spite of how distorted our experience of servanthood may be, it is built into God's design for our lives and for our world. And what we need from others and what our world needs from us is to have hearts that reflect Jesus' heart, the heart of a servant. So we may have all failed in humility and servanthood at one point or another in our lives, but Jesus remains the perfect example of humility and servanthood. So as we look at our passage today, we're going to see a contrast between Jesus and his disciples. And the first thing we see in the text is Jesus's example of humble service. You see, in the beginning of this text, Jesus is beginning his journey all the way to Jerusalem to the cross. Prior to this text, what we read last week and we went through, They're in probably a town called Caesarea Philippi, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. And while they're there, this desperate father has a demon-oppressed son who brings that son to Jesus' disciples and begs them to cast out the demon. And the disciples of Jesus publicly fail to do so. And then when Jesus' disciples fail... And the crowd is beginning to doubt whether or not Jesus can do anything or is even willing to do anything. You see this exasperation in the voice of Jesus. How long am I going to put up with you? How long am I going to tolerate this sinful generation? And yet, when they call upon him and this desperate father says, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Jesus casts out the demon and succeeds where his disciples had failed. But after they had publicly failed, Jesus' disciples are following Jesus across the country. So our text begins, they went on from there. They're going through the entire region of Galilee, west to east, across the country, toward Capernaum. And they didn't want anybody to know where they were going, for Jesus is privately preparing his disciples for what's coming next. And he says to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. And they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. You see, Jesus had received a mission from God the Father. To be sent into the world, to be born as a helpless baby, to live a sinless life, and ultimately to die as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, and then rise from the dead, so that everyone who believes in Jesus by faith might receive eternal life with him. This is the height of servanthood. Jesus left the glory of heaven to obey the Father and to save and serve us. And the fact is, we deserve none of it. 
Now, this theme repeats over and over as Jesus tells his disciples and others about his mission of salvation from the Father. And the disciples have to be repeatedly taught to turn away from their concerns about social status and to focus on Jesus' given mission of atoning for sin. And this is the second of three instances when Jesus tells his disciples straight up that he is going to be handed over into the hands of others to be killed and then rise again. And this second time, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. It is the title that Jesus uses in reference to himself more than any other in the Gospel accounts. And in this context, the title of the Son of Man would have reminded Jesus' disciples of a vision given to the prophet Daniel, in which the Son of Man is described in this way. And Daniel says, and I quote, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, that's another name for God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, that is to Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. You see, the disciples' vision of the Son of Man is one in which the Son of Man inherits this great glory and an everlasting dominion and a kingdom that's never going to be destroyed. It's understandable why they're thinking, this is great. We're going to throw out the Romans. We're going to have a restoration of the kingdom of Israel. Jesus is going to be a king on the throne. And as the Son of Man, all the nations and peoples and languages of the earth are going to come and serve him. And it's going to be great and glorious. And he's going to rule the nations, and that kingdom will last forever and never be destroyed. But Jesus, even though he eventually inherits and fulfills all this, is deliberately taking that expression of his messianic mission and turning it on its head. So that his disciples will understand that he came as a suffering servant. You see, later in Mark's gospel account, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man, referring to himself, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in doing so, Jesus is primarily concerned with his spiritual mission of salvation given to him by God the Father. And Jesus warns his disciples about his up-and-coming betrayal and handing over to men. And the grammar of the original Greek text here of this verse at least implies that it's ultimately God the Father who is doing the handing over. It's not merely Judas Iscariot who betrays Jesus into the hands of the temple guards. This is an act of God to give his one and only son over to being arrested, tortured, and killed, and ultimately to rise. And Jesus foretells of his crucifixion and resurrection this second time, and it's an immense sacrifice. For Jesus to leave his eternal rightful place beside God the Father in glory and to be humbled into the form of a helpless baby and as a servant becoming human in the incarnation. And in verse 33, we are told that Jesus' disciples do not understand what he is saying to them. It is worth pointing out here that Jesus' death and resurrection is something that was not fully revealed yet. 
You see, we have the advantage of reading to the end of the story in the Gospels. We know what's coming. We've seen it. We've read it many times, probably. And yet, for the disciples, even though Jesus is verbally telling them repeatedly, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to men. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise again. They don't quite fully connect all the dots yet, and somewhat understandably so. But it's in the face of Jesus' humble service that the disciples' discussion seems so foolish and out of place. Because the next thing we see in this passage is the disciples' comparison game. You see, even on their way to Capernaum, after they had publicly failed in their ministry to cast out this demon, and Jesus succeeds where they had failed, even before they arrive in Capernaum, they're already boasting and arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest. It's a dangerous comparison game. And when they arrive at the house, Jesus sits down with them and is like, So, what were you talking about? You ever have somebody call you out for something that you don't want to admit? It was like, So, where were you after school today? What was that? That's a little bit of the level of embarrassment that Jesus' disciples have because they don't even answer him at all. It doesn't say they mumbled. They said they said nothing because they're embarrassed about the fact that they were arguing about who was the greatest. But the attitude of Jesus is different. You see, the attitude of Jesus and subsequently the attitude of an ideal disciple is willing servanthood and not mere compliance. And while the disciples were jockeying for social status to be closest to Jesus, hoping to gain social status and fame and popularity by their proximity to Jesus, Jesus is about to turn their expectations on their heads, saying, whoever would be greatest among you must be the servant of all. It's worth noting here that Jesus says similar things to his disciples on a couple of different occasions. On this occasion, he says that you must become the servant of all. And it implies that his choice of vocabulary here is such that it is a willing servanthood. It's not the actions of a compelled slave. It is the willing actions of a servant who, in loving response to what their master wants, does what is required of them. In Scripture, this is not the first time that something like this has been suggested. While Jesus is certainly turning their expectations upside down, we have multiple examples throughout the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, where this sort of thing happens, and God takes the least of these, the people who have no social status, the people who have no clout, and exalts them, but he humbles the people that we expect to be great. Think of the example of Jacob and Esau. Jacob is the younger child, and yet he is ultimately the one who inherits the birthright and the promise of Abraham to father the nation of Israel. Joseph is the youngest of his brothers, and yet he receives dreams and visions from God in which the sun, moon, and stars are bowing down to his star, and the sheafs of grain are bowing down to his sheaf of grain. And his brothers, in a comparison game, are jealous of him, and they throw him in a pit, and they sell him as a slave, and he ends up in Egypt... But ultimately, God raises him up to be the second of command in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself, in which the brothers of Joseph, 
brought by need and poverty, have to ask his forgiveness and are bowing down to him for permission to buy grain. And God uses those set of circumstances to bring about a great deliverance for the people of Israel. We think of King David. At one time, the prophet Samuel is told to go to the house of Jesse to anoint the person that God had chosen to be the next king of Israel after Saul. And when they get to Jesse's house, the oldest and firstborn son of Jesse is presented to Samuel, and he's tall and he's handsome. He's like, ooh, this might be the guy. But God says to Samuel, no, don't look at his stature. Don't look at how tall he is. I have rejected him. And then he looks at the next one. No, I've rejected this one too. No, I've rejected this one too. And he goes through all seven sons of Jesse. And he says, is this all the sons that you have? And Jesse ultimately says, well, I mean, there's the runt. I mean, he's the little guy. We left him with the sheep. You can talk to him if you want, I guess. And it's when this little guy, David, is brought before Samuel that God says to him, Arise, anoint him, for I have chosen him a man after my own heart. The patriarchal cultural norm was for the oldest son, the one with the birthright, the heir of the estate, the tall, handsome guy, to be the one that we expect to be great and consistently Throughout history, God turns that expectation on its head, and he chooses the lowest of the low to exalt them and be used for his purposes. And Jesus is doing something similar here with his disciples, saying, whoever, must be, whoever among you would be the greatest must be the servant of all. And then he gives them an object lesson. Jesus places a child in his arms, and he teaches the disciples, and affirming that child and leading by example. You see, Jesus dignifies servanthood by stating that whoever welcomes this little child, this person who has no social status, who can give you nothing in return for your service, the least of these, whoever receives this little child in Jesus' name, receives not only Jesus himself, but he receives God the Father who sent Jesus in the first place. So whoever serves the lowly is actually serving God and not merely serving other people. In this example, Jesus is showing that every human being is of great importance and worth in God's kingdom. We are all created in the image of God, and no one can take that God-given dignity and value away from us. The people whom the world thinks are unimportant, or even the people that we're sometimes tempted to think are unimportant, in the workplace, or at school, or dare I say it, sometimes the people we think are less important than us in the church, if they are following Jesus, are an indispensable part of the body of Christ and are of great worth in God's sight. The fact is we truly need one another. And one of the best ways we can love one another sincerely from the heart is to serve one another and in humility to consider others to be more important than ourselves. And Jesus' example of receiving a little child ties back to Jesus' own personal example of servanthood and becoming obedient to death, even the point of death on a cross. Philippians 2 verses 4 to 8 says it this way, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So if Jesus himself came from the right hand of the Father in eternal glory in order to be obedient to the Father's calling to redeem the world and was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, then Jesus truly is the greatest example of true humility and servanthood. But to apply this, what should our response be? I would suggest to us this morning that the proper response is that we serve others following the example of how Jesus first served us. You see, the, the, the disciples, when they're arguing about who's the greatest along the, the road, are jockeying for social status, and the core issue here is one of status. Their arguing over who's the greatest feels really off-putting to us, I said, probably. But it wouldn't have been necessarily out of place in their cultural environment. Social status was a really big thing in the first century Jewish community. And at the center of their argument is the desire to be somebody. To have status and to be a person of prominence and importance. And it's unlikely that you'll find any of us standing around arguing over who is the greatest. We just... We don't talk like that. But we all strive to be somebody, which is not so different. We all crave status and affirmation. We all desire to know that we are loved and lovable people. And the way it expresses itself is very different in our culture. But we share the same desire as the disciples. Sometimes we gain status from the things we surround ourselves with in life. Things like certain brands of clothing or cars or a certain size of house in a certain neighborhood can become markers of our status, proof that we are somebody. We all know that today is Super Bowl Sunday, right? How many of us own a jersey of our favorite team and our favorite player and we have their last name across our back? We want to be associated with that person because we want to be somebody. We're hoping a little bit of their fame, a little of their ability to be somebody might rub off on us. Sometimes we gain social status and affirmation by presenting an airbrushed version of ourselves on social media. Or sometimes we gain that status through our accomplishments or achievements. We try to be the best in our class at school academically, or the best athlete on our team, or simply the best at whatever hobbies we take up. In our career, we seek to be the best in our field, and we try to climb the company corporate ladder and the The more money we make and the better suit and tie we have and the more people we have underneath us, the better. Or maybe the achievement we look for is the cleanliness of our home and the well-behaved nature of our children. And these and in so many ways, we look to our achievements to prove that we are somebody and they bolster our sense of self-importance. And the desire to be somebody is not necessarily a bad thing. We are made by God to know that we are loved and lovable. And Jesus didn't necessarily correct his disciples for wanting to be somebody, but for finding their greatness in comparison to one another. They were looking for status and greatness in the wrong place. 
You see, when we are free from the need to be somebody in the eyes of other people, we can receive others and so receive Christ, who is the only one who can give us the validation and security of identity that we crave. Our core God-given identity is not found in what other people can give us, but only in what God has already given us when he caused us to become children of God. And when we see that in Jesus and in his act of humble service, we have everything that we truly need. We are free from the need to gain something from others around us. And we are free from needing status and can now give ourselves sacrificially and loving service to other people. So as we transition today to the communion table, let us take a time of silent repentance and reflection on all that Jesus has done for us in humble servant leadership. And then let's come together and receive the elements, knowing that Jesus gave his life to free us from the need to be somebody, so that we can live in humble service to the one who gave everything for us. Let's take a few moments in silent prayer of confession.